Hello and welcome to the Cocktail Hour with me, your host, Erin Fultz. The Cocktail Hour is a place where we celebrate the women in business who are shaking shit up. This week we are talking to Lynn Parman, Vice President of Business Development for the Kansas City region for McGowan Gordon Construction. Welcome, Lynn. Thanks. It's great to be here. I know. I'm excited. We were just talking offline how we've been planning this for a minute, right? Well, we see each other places. We do. And I always think, I want to know more about Erin. And I'm always like, come on my podcast. Yes, you do. And then we finally got you scheduled. Yes. And then it was like, we dropped the ball. Then you had to reschedule. And here we are. Yep. But now you get to record in our big fancy studio instead is, of our old it office. It is very cool. Thank you. Very cool. Thank you. We like it. It makes us feel a little, a little more legit these days. Mm-hmm. So, well, let's tell the few people that don't know you who you are. All right. Okay. Do you know I knew who you were for a long time before I met you? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, all good. I was just like, oh, there's Lynn Parman. There she is. Oh. So I'm very excited to have you here. So let's tell the one person that didn't know yet who you are. <laughs> As vice president of business development for the Kansas City market, Lynn leads business development efforts for the Kansas City region for McGowan Gordon Construction. Lynn has over 20 years of broad-based experience in nonprofit leadership, private industry, regional economic development, and local government management. Previous to her role with McCown-Gordon, Lynn served as president and CEO of the American Royal Association. Lynn has also served in leadership roles in sales and marketing and corporate communications for Boringer. Am I saying that right? Beringer. Beringer. Say the rest of it. Beringer Ingelheim Vet Medica. Inc. Yes. (laughs) I got that part. (laughs) And worked six years as vice president of bioscience development for the Kansas City Area Development Council, where she directed a team in the creation, launch, and successful execution of the Casey Animal Health Corridor brand. Parman also held vice president roles in economic development and business development at Lawrence Chamber of Commerce, St. Joseph, Joseph Chamber of Commerce, respectively. Parman holds a Bachelor of Science degree in public administration from Missouri State University in Springfield, Missouri, and is a graduate of the University of Oklahoma Economic Development Institute. That is a mouthful. It is kind of a mouthful. I can Just sound like to I'm hear breathing that hard. makes me kind of tired. <laughs> no, it's amazing. But yeah, you said right before we started this, you're excited to talk about it because your career has been all over the board. Mm-hmm. It has. It really has. It's diverse. So let's kind of talk about, let's let's start where, at the beginning. How about that? Okay. Where are you from? I am from Jefferson City. Oh, okay. I am the youngest of four. I have oh. three older brothers Ooh, and grew I was up dating. Jeez. Uh, you know, they they were so much older than me. Um, okay. So I was the youngest of four. My parents both work for the state of Missouri. Very, you know, grew up in a red brick house. The same red brick house and um, I think my parents dream was for me to go to college and come back and work for the state of Missouri which is great oh, yeah. and awesome but I did not necessarily see that as you know my career path did? Um, one of them okay the rest of them have done other things and that I mean that's great and actually right. I do have government in my blood and I've done some of that um, but but I wanted to do other things yeah so you went, but you didn't go too far at first, right? I didn't. I went to Springfield, um, got a political science degree, and then met my oh, husband. You were right on the road, though, for your parents. He was right dreams. on the road. Um, and then my husband and I met in college, and okay. we got married and moved to Kansas City. And my first job was You the, get married right out of college? We did, and it worked. So you guys have been married for a while, We've been married right? 23 years. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty crazy in today's mm-hmm. world, right? Yeah. it it. Uh, I always tell my daughter, who's 15, be very picky. Right. Be very, very picky. Um, but, I, but you know, it worked the first time. Right. So um, that's great. And um, But how old were you when you got married? 23. Your daughter's 15. Mm-hmm. That's her getting married in eight years. I Yes. I, what are your thoughts? On to getting married she, at 23 today. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess if she found someone that she fell in love with and that was, you know, she's very strong and she has, she's opinionated and strong and a just, I think um, she's going to be a great leader. Yeah. And um, she meets someone that is a good partner for her, then great. Were your parents, did they think it was young? Not necessarily. I think at my, at my age and my time, a lot of people got married right out of college. Right. So, so for us, and you know, I met Jason. He was the love of my life. So, yeah. you know, it all worked. I don't know. My son's 12. And like, even to wrap my mind around him even, that just seems young. Yeah. It doesn't seem young. I get what yeah. you're saying then. But now at 23. Yeah, now it would. Yeah. So. Yeah. So we moved to Kansas City, and um, my first job was a city administrator. I was the youngest city administrator in the United States. Oh, wow. For the city of Kansas City? For city of Buckner. Where's so. That? 
Um, it's east of Independence. It's a great town. Okay. It's um, I we came to Kansas City for me to go to law school because I thought I wanted to be a city attorney and being um, so we moved. We got married and moved to Kansas City, and then I applied for a job that was in the newspaper because that's what you did yes. back then, yes. and it was the city administrator of Buckner, Missouri. Okay. And I applied for it, and I got the job. And so at the time, you know, there was, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a great city. It, you know, they have a police department and they have, um, you know, all the municipal services. And here I was 23 right out of school and I had a team of 20 and a $4 million budget. And I'm sure, I mean, they were a great team, but I'm sure they're thinking, why (laughs) did we hire this kid? You know, but it was a great experience. Um, It was hard though. I wish. What happened to law school? I did not go to law school because I got that job. Because you got the job. So I kind of went a different direction. Okay. Um, so I was a city administrator for a couple years, and there were parts of it I liked. And then and then I found economic development, which okay. is where you recruit companies to a city because they had a business park there. And I was like, this is pretty cool. I want to do this. And so, um, so then my career kind of went a different direction. So your husband moved for your job. He moved for my job one, two, three, four times. Wow. What does he do? He works for the federal government. So he's always commuted to downtown Kansas City. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so wherever we lived, as long as it was commuting distance. But he, in, in a span of 12 years, we moved four times and he moved, you know, for my job. Oh, wow. That's so, but smart. I mean, he still kept his job. Yeah. It so was just, he, his commute got longer or maybe to the west or to the east and that all worked great. Can we get into economic development? So yeah. I'm just going to be really honest with you. Um, I really have no clue around, I'm not even sure until you just give me that little spill that you gave me two seconds ago, that I even could have said what economic development was, right? Yeah. So at 23, had you learned about economic development in political science? Um, a little bit in college, but not, I didn't really understood how, I didn't understand how it all worked. Okay. I didn't understand that when a new company came to town, that people were actually involved yeah. in recruiting them. I just thought... Well, that's kind of cool. They, we've got a new company at our because town. we didn't have things like Amazon. Like, yeah, it was a big deal when just, Amazon was. It looking, didn't. Right? It didn't even dawn on me. I didn't even realize it. But I yeah. knew every the part of the work that I enjoyed the most is the community based work of okay. making a difference in the community. Yeah. And so when I was in Buckner, I, I eventually after Buckner went to St. Joseph, and we lived in St. Okay. Joseph. And I remember I had a neighbor that lived. Um, in the next house to us and there was a big expansion at Johnson Controls that I worked on and it was a matter of you know trying to help them expand by um, you know helping them with incentives tax incentives or workforce development how they could find more people and I remember my neighbor came to see me one day and he said you 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 worked on that project didn't you 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 helped us expand and I said yeah I was part of the team to help and he said you know, I really appreciate it because that was my product line. And um, I, you, you essentially saved my job. So, you know, thank you. And it really, you know, it hit home to me. I thought, wow, what I'm doing and what our team is doing is making a difference in people's lives. I mean, he, there was a potential he could lose his job. And we were able to show that company that St. Joseph was a great location for them. Right. And, you know, whether it was just demonstrating it was growing and, you know, we could help them with training you know, funds and all of that. But whatever we did, this is probably going back 20 years ago, um, it made a difference to him. And he teared up and I thought, wow, this is, I kind of like doing this. This made a big difference. And so, you know, I was kind of hooked from there on to community-based work where I felt like I was part of a team that was making a difference in people's lives. Okay, so I, this is so funny to me. I love that. But I think in the media, media often we hear when these big companies come, like, what are you losing? What is mm-hmm. the city losing? Because mm-hmm. big companies are coming, right? Like, what jobs are being lost? Because somebody like Amazon, who's taking away, not they're not taking away, the industry's changing, but you hear a lot of times they're taking away postal workers' jobs and stuff like that. Coming into town, you always hear what they're losing. Did you, while you were in economic development, did you ever kind of weigh, like, what was the cost of the companies coming as well? 
I think it's important to focus on the workforce. I mean, we always try to invest in training for the workforce because if their skills could be improved, then they could be relevant. Right. The person could be relevant. The company could be relevant. And so a lot of the work of economic development is trying to focus on the workforce and making sure they have the skills that they need for the company and for them to stay relevant. So, I mean, there's always wins and losses. I know in St. Joe, I was there when Quaker Oats closed. And I got to go on the news and talk about Quaker Oats closing, you yeah. know, and what the community was going to do to respond. And um, but then six months later, we were able to find a company to buy their building and and create some jobs to help with the situation. But so there's just the wins and losses. City help them sell their building to just get more workforce in there. Yeah, to try okay. to create more jobs and just to you know try to keep companies there, and that creates jobs and that creates places for people to work and stay. Okay, this may be a stupid question to our listeners and to you, but I don't understand this, so I'm going to assume some other people don't understand this, right? Because if they've never worked in economic development. does the, At what point does a city step in with a company? Like what size of company, right? Obviously, those are all very brand names. And then what else does the, does the city get anything else besides like getting the workers there and the people to stay in that city, the tax dollars? Is there any other sort of incentive? Because we hear sometimes like, that cities will will get like, I just keep circling around back to Amazon, right? Like Amazon pulled out of New York, that part of New York they were going to be because their incentives weren't what they thought they were going to be, their tax incentives. So what else is in it for the city to get those companies there? Obviously, to have the people improve the workforce is awesome, but is there anything else the city gets out of it? And then furthermore, at what size company does the start, city start getting involved of being like? I think it depends on the city. Yeah. I mean, I did economic development in St. Joseph. I led economic development in Lawrence, Kansas. And oh, then wow. I worked for the Kansas City Area Development Council where I did bioscience recruitment. I, I recruited biotech and animal health companies. Okay. So, you know, a, a smaller community, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter. It could be small, medium, or large. A lot of communities are really interested in the smaller companies too and small business yeah. because they tend to buy local and, um, there's a the entrepreneurial um, sector in Kansas City is very strong so I don't know that there's specifically a size and as far as what the community gets out of it I mean for them it's it's about having places for their residents to work right because if their residents are working in their town they're eating lunch at their restaurants they're buying gas there they're not driving 30 minutes away and that helps with the tax base and that helps with retaining those residents in their town so it makes it a better place so I think there's a lot of reasons why the city is interested in economic development. What city do you think is that you've worked with or you've been around is the best about small business about also it's been a while. Okay. It's so been a it's, while. it's, I have been away from economic development for nine years. Okay. So, so I it could have all changed by now. I think, yeah, that'd be hard. I mean, I, for me, I just, you know, Kansas City Area Development Council was one of the best places I've worked in my career. I worked there for six years, and um, we got the chance to see every city in the Kansas City region, and we just have some really great cities, and right. we have some great counties, and I, I think it'd be, it almost would be like picking which is your favorite kid. Right. You know? <laughs> I didn't know if there was one that just, like, stood out on, like, well, from small business, because mm-hmm. I think it's interesting you that brought small business, because when you look at the, the research, right, like, obviously... There's business, like my business will never be a Sprint or an Amazon or one of those, right? But when you look at the research of how much stuff small business does when you combine all the small businesses, but those aren't the stories we hear all the time, right? Mm-hmm. We hear the the big stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the business journal that comes to your uh, mail every day, mm-hmm. and right? It's, I think for, I don't know how many days we're on where we're talking about the Sprint acquisition mm-hmm. as well as the, the Google one that's mm-hmm. going out here, right? And so, but there's not lots of stories about small business. So I didn't know if just one stood out to you. You know, a lot of communities have incubators. Yeah. I mean, when I was in St. Joseph, we worked on their first incubator facility oh, where, cool. where um, at that point it was animal health and biotech companies could come and lease lab space. When I was in Lawrence, we worked on their first incubator and I think they have two now. Um, Independence has an innovation center where they have um, they have kitchens for catering companies. Yes, I've heard of that. And um, they have an amazing center in Independence and there are several incubators all around town. Kansas City, Missouri does a lot of yeah. work. The EDC of Kansas City does a lot for small businesses right. and incubators. So, I mean, there's there's a lot happening um, in that sector. So then you go from economic development and then you went to the recruitment. Is recruitment next? 
So I, I led economic development in St. Joseph and in Lawrence, and those were similar positions, just yeah. different communities, and they were great. I mean, it was really a, a great point in my career. And then I went did to the Did you become Kansas- a KU fan while you were in Lawrence? I did. Good. I really did. I, yeah. I went I mean, to school there for a few years. Something about going to Allen Fieldhouse and so watching. Cool, right? Oh, yeah. We are definitely um, KU fans for sure, just yeah. because we live there. My daughter was born in Lawrence. And so um, even though I went to Missouri State, which yeah. is my favorite. I was wondering. Um, KU, though, I mean, just living there and being part of that university community and selling a university yeah. community, it was really, really fun. It was a um, cool college town for and sure. And then I went to Kansas City Area Development Council. And um, I it was a new position. And my job was to, is was to recruit bioscience companies. And in the course of that, Kansas City knew that there was a big cluster of animal health companies. So those okay. are companies like Bayer, yeah. um, Beringer Ingelheim Vet Medica, Siva is a big one, Hills Pet Nutrition, mm-hmm. just this big cluster of companies that make products for animals. And so where were most of them out of at the time. Where where were they? There's a lot in St. Joe. Okay. Topeka, Kansas City, kind of spread throughout the metro. If you added all of them up, there were about 200 wow. of these animal health companies. So KCADC hired me and said, we have a hunch that we have a cluster of these companies. You know, we'd like you to come on board and lead an initiative with a, with a great team. I mean, a lot of, of civic organizations were involved, but be a part of this to, to bring this cluster to light. Yeah. And so we created the Animal Health Corridor, which um, now is known globally as the largest single concentration of this industry in the world. And so I worked on that for six years and was part of the team that recruited the National Bioagro-Defense Facility in Manhattan. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a government lab. It was a two-year recruitment process. It's under construction right now, but it's a, at the time it was a $500 million research lab. It's much bigger now. I think it got bigger, but um, I was part of that team that recruited the National Bioagro-Defense Facility um, with a great team. I mean, there were lots of people on this team, but for six years, I, you know, got to work in, in most of the communities and with both states and with a lot of great people to try to grow our base of biotech companies. Oh, wow. And um, it was really fun. Did you know much about biotech companies? I do this? not have a super strong science background. Okay. I think. Uh, were you a little nervous? It's not into my it? strength. Well, because um, that's just a big word. You, yeah. <laughs> you, know? you know, for me, I had just in St. Joe recruited animal health companies and in Lawrence biotech companies. And so I just had about 10 years of industry knowledge of what those kinds of companies need. Right. So I didn't have to be an expert in it. Um, but that industry is just thriving and still is. And when I left KCADC to actually go into the industry, Kim Young with the Kansas City Area Development Council, she took on that role and she has done an amazing job taking it. She is, she is taking it to a whole different level. It's, it's really awesome to see what she's achieved. And then from there you went where? Then I, I took a big risk in my career. This is where my career kind of, my, my career was very predictable. But uh, we had, you know, my daughter was born and um, at the time, you know, really to, I'm, I'm a very ambitious person if you haven't told already. <laughs> but after I had been with KCADC for six years, I really enjoyed it, but I, I had a desire to lead. I wanted to lead a team, lead okay. an organization. I just had a strong desire to diversify my career path and lead. And so, um, you know, we didn't want to move. We didn't want to move to a bigger city because right. I was in that per- career progression where to move up. I would have to move. Okay. We'd have to move again. And, you know, Jason had already moved four times. And he said, <laughs> we can move anywhere in Parkville you want. <laughs> you know, anywhere else you want to go yeah. in our neighborhood in Parkville. Right. Um, so he was not ready. He, he did not okay. want to move. And so it was like, well, you know, I need to get, I need to diversify my experience. I'd never worked in the private sector before then. Okay. I'd worked in government and nonprofit, but never been in the private sector. Right. So I took a huge risk and went to Beringer Ingelheim Vet Medica and led sales operations. So what do they do? Sales operations are really any of the analytical and operational. F- oh, Beringer. Yeah. They are. A, they make um, vaccines for animals. So they okay. make medicine for pigs and horses and dogs and cats. Got it. And um, cattle. But you said sales and operations, right? Yeah. Which it, are two very separate things. So it any of the operational and analytical functions to support sales and marketing were within oh. the team I oversaw. Got it. So it was it was a big team. I mean, yeah. the most people I had ever managed before that point, probably three. Okay. And then I went and led a team of 55. Oh, wow. And four different divisions. And it was in an area that I was not an expert. So I had to learn to lead. Yeah. 
you know, I had to really learn to lead. And so on the team that I oversaw, there were people that, um, you know, looked at data and manual spreadsheets and had a high school diploma all the way to people that were 30 years into their career with MBAs, you know, who were doing advanced analytics and big data. And so, you know, learning how to work with people and find out what makes them tick and how to empower them and motivate them to do great things. And my bachelor's degree. Were you, and I ask you this, so I don't know if you know this, I don't have a college degree. And uh, I think I'm fine with it. Other people say that I come off insecure about it because I bring it up a lot that I don't have it. So now I'm like hyper-focused on that, right? Mm -hmm. So when you bring up all the way to the MBAs, was that ever a an insecurity for you that not really no not really um I can't really think of any where I felt like I've never really I I am halfway through my master's degree I didn't finish my master's degree um but I I think in that role um I really needed to learn how to lead how to bring a team together how to do goal setting and strategic planning and set you know key performance indicators and how to have fun yeah I mean these were people glued to their computers and spreadsheets and doing analysis regardless of what role they were doing and we had to find a way to translate to them how important what what they were doing was to the company but then to have fun so we did crazy things I mean I think my my team really stuck out in the company because we would you know do all these birthday parties and we'd have spirit days and we would do um field days I mean like remember the field days you used to have in grade Mm -hmm. school we did that we had teams and we did crazy stuff and then we had um we went through a process and created a mission statement for our own team and purpose statement and we had tailgate parties and we did all these things and they used to say oh that crazy support functions team but for me it was about connecting it was about the people forming friendships and when you have a friend at work makes your job a whole lot better right you want to come to work you want to connect and so creating that culture to where people built relationships they found friends and they worked hard and they felt like what they were doing mattered and so to try to create a team like that that's what I learned to do when I was at Beringer. how long were you there I was there for five years oh wow and I was commuting to I was the one commuting this time (laughs) so I was commuting to St. Joe oh so they were in St. Joe it's in St. Joe so I did the 52 miles door-to-door each day and you know it went by fast it's such a great company and I learned more in that five years than I have my entire career oh wow because I just I mean there was so much I had to learn about leading an organization leading people and just people you know how how far did how long did it take 52 miles 52 it was 52 minutes it was 52 miles we have some listeners I know that are in California so yeah, no, 52 yeah. miles sounds one like stop a light, day. <laughs> one stoplight once I got to St. Joe. Okay. Um, but, you know, that was such a great experience for me. And I, you know, it was tough, though. It was really tough. Yeah. I mean, we outsourced divisions. I had had to learn how to let people go and restructure teams and right. how to deal, you know, how to make sure people under, you know, just dealing with the change and, and moving the team through it and making progress and, you know, cutting cost and then ramping up and scaling up. I mean, I think it was, I, it kind of got to the point where it was like, okay, it's Tuesday, we're going to restructure again, you know, but always trying to improve the culture and just so many great people that work there. But I, I learned more in that, in those five years What's about how to lesson? lead. Um, I'll tell you, innovation is the most important, I think one of the most important things in a culture. Mm-hmm. And the way that a manager um, reacts to ideas is the most important um, ingredient to how much innovation you're going to have. So, so what's a good way to react? Well, I mean, a lot of times those ideas come up in staff meetings or in retreats or just in interaction where someone will say, hey, Aaron, I've got this idea. I've been thinking about it. What about if we do X, Y, Z? And if the person they're sharing the idea with immediately comes up with the problems or that they tried it before, it immediately just shoots down that idea. But instead, if you can consider the possibilities first and then the problems, that just subtle shift of possibilities first um, can create that ownership and that um, excitement of that person. And the other thing that I've learned a lot about innovation is that when that person comes to you and says, hey, I've got this great idea, if you add value to it, meaning like, oh, yeah, well, what about if we do this, but then right. we could do this and this and this, the person will, it will decrease their ownership of that idea by 50% in that one sentence, yeah. just by trying to add on something that really doesn't matter. It may not even really improve the idea, but if you can let the person run with it and feel ownership and excitement instead of, well, we tried it and didn't work. 
And fast forward to the American Royal, I mean, we had in our staff meetings, we actually had a rule that we always had to consider possibilities first before problems with any ideas because I wanted people to feel like their voices were heard and that ideas were valued and that's the only way we get better. Do you know who Duncan Wardell is? No. So he was head of Disney's creative for like 25 years. He's Mm -hmm. insane. He's a big speaker in this creative space and I sat through one of his, in San Diego at a conference, I sat through one of his um, sessions about... uh, feeling creative on days you don't feel creative. And it's so funny that you say that because he said one of the things that he always does and he makes all of his teams do is if an idea is thrown out, it's never no, it's never the problems. It's always the answer is like his teams are taught to say yes and and then add some sort of idea mm-hmm. to the idea. Mm-hmm. And one, it can it can take that idea from maybe not a great idea to to a great mm-hmm. idea. And the ownership piece that you yeah. were talking about. And you want people to be excited about it. And I've never heard it. that before. You're the second if, person I've ever If somebody, you know, shoots down their idea or if it's a culture of just trying to say what could be wrong about the idea and that becomes the culture, people stop raising their hands. Right. They do. And they stop coming to work, you know, excited with feeling like they can make a difference. And so that was one of my big leadership learnings. Um, How did you do it? Because that was your big leadership. What, so far in this career state, because I know you get some some cooler things that came to, so we're going to get to those. But I've, I want to ask this question because this is something I'm still learning. At what part did the, one of the things people always ask me when they're starting out in their journeys and mm-hmm. as leaders is when do you get used to, and I don't know if used to is the right word, but are okay with or better at being able to let people also go? Because there's mm-hmm. one thing to exciting people and, and this, mm-hmm. there's people you got to let go. Mm-hmm. At what point in your like, journey so literally far? Literally let go? Like let them go. Like, like let them fire go. Fire them? them? Yeah. Okay. I, th- I didn't know if you were talking about impa- like delegating. Oh, no, 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 like, no. Let them like, go. To letting them like, go. Because like this? I think when we're talking leadership, people mm-hmm. always talk about like the good things and the mm-hmm. bright spots. But we there's very few people out there that ever talk mm-hmm. about. And But also when you become the leader of 55 mm-hmm. people, all 55 mm-hmm. people didn't work for you for five years, mm-hmm. right? So at what part in your journey was it once you were working that job or was it an economic development when you had the two or three people where you finally felt like, okay, this is just part of the job and, I ha- mm-hmm. and I'm and i decent at it. I don't yeah. know if you ever want to be good at firing. Unfortunately, you kind of, you know, the first time you do it, it's really, really hard. Um, I think the first time I, I did it was um, probably about, I don't know, 17 years ago, but... I will say that, you know, if, if at all possible, you try to make it work. And, and I feel like it starts with really understanding the person and what right. motivates them. And But you can't make it work. But sometimes people. it doesn't work. Sometimes right. they don't have the right skills for the job they're being right. asked to do. And, and sometimes it's your own fault because you and, hired the wrong person. Right. Or they could have been there and in the wrong job. And you try to work with them to see, can we move them to a different job? You know, does it still work? But if it ultimately right. doesn't work, I think in fairness, people need to understand why it's not working. You have to be true to them. They don't want you to beat around the bush and just to be honest and transparent and to handle it, giving them the most dignity as possible. Um, you know, I've had situations where people have, where I had to look 23 people in the eye and say, I'm sorry, but we're outsourcing your division. And, and, you know, we've got it, we're going to handle this the best we can, and we're going to help you as much as we can, but the division does not look, it no longer exists here. I've had those situations. I've had situations where it's more performance related. I've had situations where it just was not the right, the skill set was not the right fit for what was needed in that role. And sometimes there was another role for them and sometimes it wasn't. But what I've always tried to do with the people is say, I really want to help you. You can use me as a reference, you know, if the situation's right. Sometimes right. it's not. Right. But, and then stay with them and try to, you know, try to really help them to get on their feet. I mean, there's, there's people that I've had to let go that I'm still a reference for them. And it seems kind of odd, but yeah. I mean, I just, ultimately, I, I just want people to be happy and try to get into a place where it can work. Where in your career did you feel comfortable doing it? Because this is a question I get asked mm-hmm. very often on LinkedIn, because I think this is something as women we struggle with. Like, we I don't think growing. I ever feel comfortable doing it. I mean, You're it's still, really right? hard. Oh, I, I don't think you ever feel comfortable right. doing it. It's just I always try to put myself in their shoes and what they would, what I would want to hear, right. and what I, how I would want it to be handled, and that should be the first thing you think of, right? And so it doesn't have to be. I mean, even if it's a situation where it's performance or whatever, it's just always maybe trying to figure out from their perspective how they would want to hear it and how you would want them to handle it. So do you think that women, um, and this is 
this is my podcast. So <laughs> this is a, a, a weird question and not there's probably not a PC way to answer this. But do you think that women have a harder time firing people than men? I don't know. I'm not sure. I hadn't even really thought of it that I've way. I've never talked to a man leader that that's been one of their hardest struggles as a as the leader. But mm-hmm. almost every woman I've talked to has said that. Yeah, I don't I don't know if it's a male or female thing. I But does that make us better leaders because we are putting ourselves in there? I you know, I've had some really great male leaders. I don't know if it's a gender thing. I just know for me personally, I it's all about the people and the right. person and their situation and just being empathetic. I tend to be in very empathetic person sometimes it too empathetic but um I just really try to put myself in their shoes in whatever situation you say sometimes too empathetic so have there been situations where maybe you should have let somebody go way before um I think so probably earlier in my career you know I kind of almost have this six six month window kind of um guidepost for myself when I'm in a new role um when I was at the American Royal and even when I was at Beringer, I feel like leaders, when they come into an organization, they see things completely objectively. Right. They see things that are working great. They see things that are not working great. They see people in wrong roles. They see things they need to fix. Those objective thoughts they have in the first couple months in particular, they really need to take note of it right? because they're probably pure. And I think you've got about a six-month window to make some big changes to where your leadership will say, Erin sees it. Yeah. She sees it. If you wait longer than that and you try to make these big, huge changes a year later when it was just flashing lights for you your first day, your second day, your seventh day, your seventh month, but you didn't do it, after a while, it almost becomes to feel personal. Whereas as a leader, you've got six months, you see it, you can make changes, you can reorganize, you can say we need to rebrand, we can do we need to make plans. You don't have to do everything in that six month window, but you need to communicate to your leadership. You see it. Right. Because if you don't, then they wonder, does she see it? So it's so interesting you say that. So we hired a COO who started last Monday. So like mm-hmm. we're a week and a half into mm-hmm. this, this uh, relationship. And I've worked with her on a board previously. And I essentially, I'm bad at operations, so I don't want to do it anymore. So I essentially said, I'm going to spend Monday with you. Mm-hmm. And then, and she had came in and met with the team quite a few times before, but I said, and then from there you're going to, you can do the changes you want. I know I'm not doing this right. So I'm open. And it, it's been really funny because we're a week and a half in and she had a reset meeting. I think it was just yesterday. And essentially she said she was going to make these changes and the team reacted really well. Mm-hmm. Right. Where there are changes I've brought up before, but mm-hmm. because they've worked with me for so long, there was a lot of pushback. Mm-hmm. And I, so I completely agree mm-hmm. with what you're saying of they're just seeing that she sees it objectively. There's no emotional attachment yep. to it. Has nothing to do with it. I mean, she didn't let anybody go or anything, but she's changing some roles. Right. And why do we do this? And why do right. we do that? I mean, I think those are the pure thoughts, the questions that need to be asked early right. on. Because if you don't say anything and just make assumptions, we're not going to get better. Right. Yeah, no. I And I had never even thought that through, but I've seen it mm-hmm. this past and week. And I've been in organizations where... You know they see it, but they're not doing it. And then they try to do it a year later and people say, wow, that felt really personal. Why do you think they don't do it? Why did they move? I I think sometimes people sit back and they just want And I think it's good to listen and to to really, I do think that's important. You've got to learn and listen. The first priority in any new role is to to learn and to listen and to not make assumptions and not make judgments. And that's all important. Figure out why it ended up that way. Yeah, exactly. But I think sometimes people hold back because they don't want to ruffle feathers. They don't want to change something that's always been that way. It's easier right. just to let it go the way it is. Um, but I tend to, I really like building. I like building teams. I like, I like if somebody, if there's a hot mess, you know, and they're like, oh, we just need someone to go in and just make sure that's working the way it should work. Oh, that's so fun yeah. you know, to come in. Or if it's a situation where it's brand new and we need to create uh, we know we need to create this division, this structure, this whatever, this organization, then you just get to go in and kind of create it from scratch. But right. I've not ever been a really good maintainer. Like so if you someone, like to fix. I like fixer. to fix, I like to build. I think if someone came to me and said, I have an amazing opportunity, this is a great organization. The person who was in this role before did a fantastic job and all you have to do is just come and just keep it going. I'd say that sounds great, but probably not for not me. Not your thing. Not yeah. for me because I want to build. I want right. to, you know, for me, it's about the people and it's about, I'm in the potential business. 
Oh, I For like me, that. it's all about potential. Right. It's about helping people reach their potential, and it's about helping organizations to reach their potential. So um, I really am always focused on how can we make things better. And even right. with people, I, I absolutely love spending time with people that are probably five years into their career and trying to contemplate what might be next for them. Yeah. That's kind of a sweet spot for me because I think, you know, they've got enough time and enough experience um, and enough confidence that they're starting to think, hmm, I wonder what I could do. I wonder what's possible. Right. And a lot of times they let barriers or preconceived notions come into play and they hold themselves back. And so I love being around people that are at that stage in their career and just helping them kind of work through either a transition they want to make or some a change they want to make or just when they don't even know what might be next. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. Do you, What sort of mentoring do you do that you find those people? I probably have five people right now I'm mentoring. Um, it just comes to me. I don't know. Just if I meet someone, um, you know, one of them was someone through a, a nonprofit organization. I'm on a board and the staff person um, and I had coffee and we just had a great conversation. She's right in that sweet spot, just kind of um, trying to find her legs. And we just had a great conversation about her career and what might be next for her. Because for me, it's always about what's next. It's right. not a big grand plan. I've never, Obviously, you looked at my career path. Yeah. It's not like I said when I was 23, oh, I right. want to go and be the CEO of the American Royal. I didn't right. even know what the American Royal was. So it just came. And then she came back and said, will you be my mentor? I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. I'd love to be your mentor. So now we're kind of working through a lot of different aspects of what might be next for her. But it's also for her or this person or mentoring, it's about them really understanding what their strengths are and understanding what brings them passion and really where they find the most fulfillment in their career. And then being able to kind of narrow in on when they have an amazing day, like a really good day. What is it about that day that really um, energizes them? And they should pay attention to that because that may be the work that they should be doing. Right, right, right. Okay, so American, let's get to the American Royal. Okay. So you end up getting out of bioscience. So I had been commuting. I think my daughter was in, she just got done with elementary school. And I was tired of driving. How much maternity leave did you take between all this? What? Did you take much maternity leave? I had a five-week maternity yeah. leave. I wasn't, whenever Feels I... was like uh, you just kept going. <laughs> yeah, I never really had. But I don't know that, um, I don't know. It just, for me, it just the organization I was in when I had my daughter, there wasn't a maternity leave policy right. at that time. I mean, that was a while ago and it was a nonprofit, which is, you know, just for that particular organization, they, they didn't have one. So I didn't take much maternity leave. Would you have taken... Okay, so this is me, this is me, just my opinion, but... I couldn't do maternity leave. I did five weeks and I had to go back. Like I'm not a stay at home type yeah. of girl, right? And so I was with an organization with my last one that I didn't have maternity leave. So I had five weeks vacation. So I used that. Yeah, and that's I went what back. I did. But I found myself, I found it so interesting because I was young with my first one and like early 30s with my second one. I found myself like, okay, well, I want to be doing this stuff during the day, which mm-hmm. has almost become controversial in some circles where they're like, no, you need to bond with your kid and stuff. I'm like, mm-hmm. my kid's doing great. She's happier while mama's working, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I don't know if I could have taken a 12-week mm-hmm. if they had offered it. I don't know. I I don't think I would have taken 12 weeks, but I probably would have taken longer than five weeks. It was a little too short, but yeah. you know that was just the situation. And, and mine was my second, so that could yeah, be a little different too, right? So the first one, I just had a night job, so I yeah, I think I was back in a three or four weeks but you're like okay well yeah but it didn't feel like weeks ago I'm just gonna go back to (laughs) work time to go I was a bartender like there wasn't much yeah I mean that's what you had to do do do? yeah at the time but but yeah 12 weeks is sometimes for me that seems like it would be long and I know for other people they're like can do six months but for Mm -hmm. me when people say five weeks I'm like I totally get it girl yeah no I I think it probably would have been longer but um so then I went then I went to the American Royal and it was an amazing opportunity. So how opportunity. do you end up at the American Royal? Well, I I had been looking to come back to Kansas City. I was okay. really honestly ready to go back into the nonprofit sector. I was ready. I'd gotten great corporate experience and I was ready to go back to nonprofit. I wasn't okay. exactly sure where. And I had known the previous president of the American Royal, Bob Peterson. He's a great guy. And I, I saw that he was retiring. And so I just said, what are they going to do with your role? And he said, well, if you're interested, you should reach out to this person. And I said, well, I don't know if I am or not, but 
um, I, I had associated with the American Royal before when I was with the Animal Health Corridor, and I thought, well, that'd be kind of interesting. So I went and had a conversation, and 10 days start to finish, I was the new president. Oh, wow. So it went pretty fast. Yeah, um, that's a big And I was the first female president in their history. I mean, it's a, the organization was formed in 1899. And you were the first female? First female. Oh, wow, that's awesome. I didn't and I said in my interview, I said, well, I have cowboy boots, of course, but I probably am not going to wear a cowboy hat or a belt buckle. I mean, that's just, <laughs> I think you have to be authentic to yourself. Right. And they said, oh, absolutely, you know, whatever, you know, because the American Royal is so, it's such an amazing organization. I, I think a lot of people know it for the barbecue. Right. But, um, which is a big part and it's the biggest fundraiser and it's the world's largest barbecue. Right. Um, it has a lot, a lot of programs centered around scholarships for youth around the country to oh, wow. cultivate their dreams. You know, they come and they compete at either a horse show or a livestock Is show. It's a nonprofit. It's a nonprofit. Okay. It's a 501c3. I never knew that. I so, um, I mean, the whole purpose of the barbecue when it was formed was to um, be able to fund the organization. Oh, wow. And now it's obviously, you know, a world, a world um, competition. Right. Um, but they also have... Um, equestrian shows livestock shows they do they have curriculum in elementary schools and now middle schools teaching kids about from where their food comes oh, wow. um, they give scholarships to kids all over the country for academic excellence or if they've maybe won a horse show so in many ways um the american royal exists to um, cultivate dreams of kids and really adults from around the world wait so, how long what when were you there i was there for three years and what years were you there? I was there from the end of 2015, and then I left in 2018. So during those years is when the American Royal made a lot of changes too, right? Uh, yeah, and okay. I think, and that's and that's uh, part of the reason I was there. Okay. I mean, the, the past presidents, I mean, George Guastillo was a president of the American Royal. He did a fantastic job. The okay. one um, that um, is is the president of Union Station. They've, oh, they've had okay. a lot of great presidents. Bob Peterson was a great president. And they were ready for someone to come in and, and really focus on the organization itself. Okay. You know, the operations of the organization and um, the branding, the, you know, public image of the organization, the events and how they could be more operational efficient and so for three years that's what I did yeah. and it was great um, you were there when they won the big so my space is obviously advertising and they won uh Walt Tietrich won the award for the the billboard you guys did yes we mm -hmm. did the world's largest rack of ribs billboard right that yeah. was our brainchild because that year we had um they I should say I'm not there anymore but they had the barbecue was on Labor Day yeah and so they, they had to we had to find a way to get people's attention right and so Waltz Tietrich and our staff came up dreamed up that idea of like that billboard and um it was it was awesome right yeah I remember seeing it and then I remember reading about the awards right so yes and um so it, it's great the staff there's great um and then uh you know I had been there three years and my daughter was about ready to enter her freshman year of high school okay and for me um that that job is an all-in job you know, the season itself spans the entire fall season. And I had been through the season three times. And although I loved it, I also knew that, um, you know, it just, I wanted to have more time with my family. Right. You know, I didn't, um, you know, there's just lots of nights and weekends and they're yeah. all amazing and super consuming and all that. And it's, and it's amazing. But I knew that probably at some point I would be open to opportunities that wouldn't maybe have, you know, that type of schedule. Right. And so McCown Gordon, um, I had known the CEO of McCown Gordon, Ramin Sharifat, for a long time. And he and I had become friends. And we've had a conversation one day about my career and opportunities. And it kind of went quickly. Yeah. Um, but it all made sense. Sounds like you're kind of decisive. They all go in. I'm very quickly, decisive. Right? Yeah. I do. I can too. do that. And so now I'm in a role where I lead business development in Kansas City. Um, McCown Gordon is the second largest um, construction company in Kansas City. And we're number one in Kansas. And we we build commercial buildings all over kind of the Midwest. Yeah. And so my job is... But now you're in construction. How random, Now I'm right? in construction, but it's very similar to economic development. Really? It's so similar. I feel like I, yeah, I guess have I a very similar job. It's I work a lot of projects. I build relationships. Um, the what One of the aspects I really like about my job is now I'm not just working for one nonprofit. I'm on a lot of boards. Yeah. And so, and I also am integral in how, what organizations we fund. And I go to a lot of charity events. And so for the nonprofit, nonprofit heart of me um, I feel like I'm helping a lot of organizations yeah. and so that that's very fulfilling to me
That's pretty cool. And it's a great company. I mean, the the company itself is so civically involved and it's it's more than it's more than building buildings. I mean, it's yeah. about um, building new beginnings for people, you know, and for companies and organizations, and they give back to the community in such a big way. I mean, that's the reason I'm there. Did you ever have a hard, when you're making that decision, going from the C-suite title, mm-hmm. did you have a hard time taking a job that wasn't with the same title? For me, it's never really been about the title. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'll ever be a CEO again, yeah. and that doesn't really bother me. Um it's all about the learning and right. the people and my career journey. I mean, I I want to be challenged. I want to feel like what I'm doing is making an impact and a difference. Right. And um, wherever that takes me, you know, I've just never been one to say my five-year plan is to, to do this right. or my 10-year plan because I, I believe it's about the journey. Right. And if you have a set plan or if you say this is exactly what I want to do, I would have missed all these experiences. Right. I wouldn't have been, I would never have been at the American Royal if I would have said, no, my plan is to be the economic developer in Omaha, Nebraska by the time I'm 32. Right. I wouldn't, I would never be at the American Royal. But I feel like some people, and I do feel like this is more old school business versus new school business. And I do, I personally see a fine line there, pretty hard divide. But some people would have a hard time with that, mm-hmm. with just giving up a title. Mm-hmm. Or, and mm-hmm. some people might have advised against it for mm-hmm. you as well. Did anybody ever have those conversations? Not really. Or were you already all in mattered. by the time they, I don't yeah. know if it would have mattered, but I, I guess I just don't have a super big ego that that mm-hmm. wouldn't bother me. Um, I don't know that that ever occurred to me. I, I'm involved, though, quite a bit in Kansas City. And as long as I can help people and... and um, just feel like I'm making a difference in the community, then then that's been the most important factor for me. So what's been, so, okay, let's have this talk. So you have an awesome career, you have an awesome husband, which you landed at 23 when most of mm-hmm. us were making bad decisions, right? Mm-hmm. You were making good decisions. Sounds like you got a phenomenal daughter. So what's been some of the challenges mm-hmm. to get where you're at? Mm-hmm. Well, starting out, um, you know, my parents, are wonderful, wonderful people that are incredibly conservative. And my entire childhood, I was very ambitious. I wanted to try out for everything. I wanted to do everything. And my mom would always say, well, what if you don't make it? Mm. You know, what if you don't? And so I always, I grew up having this self-doubt of like, what if I don't? I would almost presuppose failure. Well, I don't know if I should try out for that because I'm probably not going to make it. And then it wasn't until I... I went to college, I met my husband, I could try out, you know, I would do all those things that um, the ambition started to set in. I mean, the ambition was there, but it wasn't realized, but it started to become realized. And um, I have always been in roles where I've been the first, the only, I've been in male-dominated career paths, I've, I've been the only one at the table that maybe didn't have that career. And so for a while, I really held myself back. I got in my own way. I got in my head, yeah. you know, of saying, well, what do I have to say? Or what do I have? I mean, I, I don't know what these people know, or I'm the only female, or I'm 20 years younger than they are. How did I get this role? And yeah. so, you know, there's always these days that I've had in my career where I've, in my head, talked myself out of something right. and had and struggled with self-doubt. And I think the more that I have um, really said, to myself, just get out of that. You know, yeah. what are you talking about? You as mu- have as much to say. And as many times as I would think an idea in my head and someone else would say it and then they do it, I thought, well, why didn't I just say that? Right. Why didn't I <laughs> yeah. just say that? I mean, well, I remember when I was working at the pharmaceutical company, I was the only female on the, it was a very high level sales and marketing committee. And the rest of the people on the committee were males that were, um, same the same exact career path you know all around the same age and then me yeah. who has no I, I didn't even have a dog at that time and I thought <laughs> I don't I, I wonder if they know I don't have a dog um <laughs> but it, it just for the first year I was kind of quiet and I held myself back but then I then I started having some some wins where you know I try something and it worked or I right. give an idea and we did it and then my confidence just started building up and so I think that's probably why I have a sweet spot for people that may struggle with self-doubt right and that's why I will tell you that my greatest passion is helping people find poten- their potential yeah. and it's because I've been in situations where I've held myself back or I've been in an environment where I didn't think something was possible right and um, I think that has helped um, really probably catapult my career more than anything because I'm, I'm always I'm probably trying to prove something yeah. or trying to um, 
to help someone achieve something they didn't think was possible. Right. We're similar like that. Um, I sit on the junior league board and they asked us in our retreat, what's the one thing that motivates you? And everyone else had these wonderful answers. And I was like proving people wrong. (laughs) And they were like, Mm -hmm. everyone stopped for a minute. And they're like, okay, yeah, cool. (laughs) Like at least you knew your answer. Like if someone tells you, oh, I don't think you could do that. That's not possible. Then it makes you do it twice as hard. And I think I've probably been like that. And I see it in people now. Now I I see it and I just, you know, it just makes me smile. You know, whether I'm mentoring something, someone or I've, been exposed to it. And then the other thing I'm super passionate about that was a barrier for me earlier on is I was, you know, I was on committees or on staffs where people were really stifled, you know, mm-hmm. where their ideas didn't matter. And it was, you know, maybe a, a leader that came in and they only like their ideas. Right. And I know how that feels. And so I'm just wildly passionate about bringing people out, you know, yeah. of asking if someone's quiet or or have it has a differing viewpoint really hearing that Mm -hmm. because innovation again is a core part of my leadership style of really not stifling that and making people feel like they're heard and they're understood because if if they feel like they just have to come to work and do exactly what they say they're not going to come to work they're not going to tell you anything and you're not going to move forward and I've just seen it happen and I've been on the receiving end of it so I think that's why you know that particular barrier is something that you know I experienced and I worked through how are you raising your daughter different than your mom raised you? Um, gosh, that's a good question. Um, well, first of all, I do not think my daughter has self-doubt because, okay. um, you know, it's an anything is One, possible. One, it's a generation, Yeah, right? it's a generation. <laughs> I think it's an anything's possible generation. And, you know, I, I am not a perfect mom and I'm not claiming to be perfect in any way. Um, an area that we focused on is trying to help her make decisions for herself and not doing things for herself. I am not a helicopter mom. I have told my daughter repeatedly, if you for some reason end up in jail, you're going to sit there. (laughs) You know, if you forget your homework at school or you forget your violin, I'm not going to bring it to you. Yeah. You know, you are responsible for your stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to do that for you. And my husband and I are just 100% on the same page. We have never swooped in. We've never made things perfect for her. And we want her to experience failure. We want her to experience success. We want her to make choices. And even if we don't agree with them, I mean, we don't want her to obviously get arrested right. or do anything that's but permanent. But she does, she's sitting there. We don't want anything permanent. Right. And certainly we would guide her, but we really want her to make decisions. I mean, even starting when she was two, do you want green beans or peas? Do you want to wear this dress or this dress? You right. know, we were always trying to challenge her to make her own decisions. And now that she's a teenager, um, you know, she's not going to make always the right decisions, but I want her to be confident in her decisions because I think that's important in life. And I think, you know, I was raised in a generation of parents that told you what to do Mm -hmm. and they made the decisions for you. Now, my parents never came in and swooped and made it all perfect, but they definitely, it was more, it was a generation where they they said, you sit in jail. I did not sit in jail. I've never been in jail. Oh, I had to sit in jail for parking (laughs) tickets one time. And, you know, I pay every parking ticket now. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's how you learn. But I think that's probably for our daughter, Riley, is she knows that it's all on her. Right. We're not going to swoop in and make things great. And we want her to anything's possible, whatever she wants to do. You have three years left and then you're back to your honeymoon phase. Yeah. Right? Yeah. We've started playing golf. My husband and I have started playing golf. And my husband's actually a very interesting guy in himself. He has, um, he has... He's a professional. He works for the federal government, but he yeah. has a country band. Oh, and he's wow. a professional musician. And he's kind of a jack at all trades. He's super smart. I I think the year that I figured out he didn't know how to ice skate, I was so happy because it was finally something that he sucked at. Uh, <laughs> do you like to ice skate? No, but it's oh. just it was the fact that he didn't know how to ice skate. I was like, was like oh my gosh, I, I have a husband something that, that you can't axes. do, right? And yeah. they just do things, and you're like, yeah, oh, you're, everything's just so easy. But anyway. Um, yeah, he's I didn't interesting know you guys were going ice skating a lot. No, we do not. But fun story. That's yeah. my exercise. I go ice skating at like oh. 530 in the morning sometimes. Oh, that's fun. So, but most people don't do it. So yeah. I thought maybe I, we had something I do in not. common. I know I go running at 530 in the morning. Okay. So if you want to go running, <laughs> be a cheaper you option me. for yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> maybe a little warmer. But. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So, well, thank you so much for yeah, coming this on. This went by fast. I know, right? That is it for this week's cocktail hour. Do you want to hear from your favorite local businesswoman? Do you know a woman in business who is shaking shit up? Send your recommendations to HeyGirl at CocktailHourPodcast.com. Make sure you subscribe and share our podcast with your friends. We share our stories to motivate and inspire you. So spread the love around. Until next time, I'm Erin Polk. Keep your class and your glass raised, and we'll see you at the next cocktail hour. Thanks so much, Lynn. Thank you. Thank you.